0: Let me add my welcome to Mickey's, it's great to see you and it's great to meet you if you're new and joining us for the first time. It's always a pleasure to have so many visitors and extended family and new people join us at Christmas and so if that is you, a warm welcome to you this Christmas Eve morning. We've just been reading about the birth of a king and it got me asking what normally happens when a king is born? When King Charles was born in 1948, there was a royal bulletin that went out to announce his birth. Several cannons were fired in Hyde Park to salute the arrival of the infant prince, and bells rang out of the royal abbey to mark the occasion. After Prince William was born in 1982, the news was immediately flashed across the globe to members of the royal family. Prince Charles was congratulated by leaders, politicians, archbishops. Apparently, he was even greeted as he left the hospital by a crowd that were chanting, nice one, Charlie. Let's have another one. And Prince George, born in 2013, Apparently it was calculated that Brits spent about 240 million pounds celebrating the arrival of their future king. The point of course is that when a king is born it's not an unknown event. It's something that everyone knows about. It's not something that happens in the quiet. From the news being spread around the globe, to the politicians, the leaders of society rushing to offer their well wishes and congratulations, to crowds celebrating and even chanting cheekily. The birth of a king is something that is known, celebrate, publicised. It's not a private event. And so it's with some intrigue that we come to our passage that was read just before. Because when King Jesus was born, he wasn't born into a ruling royal family, was he? In in fact, it's almost with some embarrassment that Herod, the ruling monarch of the day, didn't even know what was going on. And these wise men, these men of foreign nobility, they don't just come to offer their congratulations. They actually come to worship this king as we come to these verses that we've just read, Matthew, the author of this gospel, he wants us to see that Jesus is no ordinary king. In fact, Jesus is God's king. Jesus is God's king, whom we are to worship. Would you pray with me as I ask for God's help that we would receive exactly that message? Our Father as it is as as it has often been prayed father we ask that what we know not that you would teach us that what we have not you would please give to us and who we are not you would please make us we ask this for jesus sake and in his name amen now the first question we must ask is how does matthew work to persuade us that Jesus really is God's King? How does Matthew persuade us that Jesus is God's King? And in the first six verses, we have three reasons, three reasons why Jesus must be God's King. The first is in verse one. Let's reread verse one together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the arrival of these wise men is the first piece of evidence that Matthew puts forward to persuade us that Jesus is God's king. These wise men, these magi, as some translations have, they believed that cosmic forces had an impact on the physical world. When they looked out into the night sky they, and they observed movements, in the celestial beings and astronomical phenomena they made deductions about what was happening as they studied these movements and signs they were trying to interpret them it was as if they were doing their theology their study of the divine of the, what the gods were doing based on physical observations and it's very possible that they'd built up over time an expectation about a jewish king They'd had contact with the, the Jewish scriptures and the Hebrew Bible because men like Daniel had been taken into captivity, into Babylon, several hundred years earlier. And so the arrival of these privileged elites, these quite possibly men of noble birth, these educated princes, was something of note. The Bible itself has a long, steady thread of promises about God's King arriving. The Psalms, the prophets, they all point forward to when God's King will come, the rulers of the nations will gather and pay homage and recognize God's true King. Promises like Isaiah 60, verse 3, that says, That the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of of your rising. So the arrival of these men, these educated princes from a foreign nation is the first piece of evidence that Matthew gives, that he puts forward to persuade us that Jesus is God's king. The second piece of evidence is in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. The second reason that Matthew puts forward is that the news of God's king makes the current king nervous. Now, Herod, you might um, refer to as a nasty piece of work. You might have a, a boss whom you might behind his back describe like that. But this, this, that would be nothing compared to Herod. In fact, a paranoid despot doesn't even really come close. History tells us he murdered his wife. He had at least two of his sons executed out of sheer jealousy. And as his death was approaching, he arranged for hundreds of leaders to be executed. Why? So that when news of his passing rang out, there would be mourning instead of rejoicing. This man was a false king. He was a failure of a human being. He was unfit to rule God's people. He was sitting on God's throne, and yet he was a false shepherd of God's people. And Matthew is at pains to point this out. Three times Herod is referred to as the king. Verse 1. In the days of Herod the King, verse 3, when Herod the King heard of this, verse 9, later in verse 9, he's simply referred to as the king. Matthew's point is that the presence of the true king makes the existing king feel nervous and arouses a jealousy in the false king. He knows his time is up, he knows he's going to be exposed. And so the response of Herod is the second piece. We have the arrival of the Magi, the wise men, the response of Herod, and the third piece of evidence is there for us in verse 5. Herod is not only alarmed by the news, but he doesn't even know what's going on. So what does he do? Well, he inquires of the Bible experts. Verse 5, they told him... In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These are the words that can helpfully pointed out were prophesied, promised some seven hundred years earlier. Where was the Christ? Where was God's king to be born? The experts knew there was no doubting, no division, no discussion, no delay. Check your Bibles in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew, our Gospel writer, is pointing us and persuading us and giving us undeniable reasons for believing that Jesus is God's King. The arrival of these wise men, these representatives of the nations, these rulers, the present, the, the response of Herod, his nervousness, betraying his false, falsity, the actual place where Jesus was born lines up exactly with what was promised. Three pieces of irrefutable, undeniable evidence that Jesus really is God's King. So if Jesus is God's king, the one who has come to shepherd God's people, the one who has come to bring them back into a living and joyful and delightful relationship with God, how should we respond? How should we respond? In the remaining verses, we're given two alternatives. First, the response of Herod. Let's read his response in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What's Herod's response? It's one of fake worship. It's one of false humility. It's merely lip service, isn't it? He pretends to be interested, but we know he has ulterior motives. At the end of the passage, the Magi are warned, the wise men are warned not to go back, not to tell Herod where they found the king. He's exposed, isn't he? You can almost hear the sinister music playing in the background. Imagine if you were the director of a children's movie and you were to to cast this scene. This is where the music of Jafar from aladdin comes in or scar from the lion king this is the bad guy speaking you can almost hear it as these words roll off his tongue and when you have found him bring me word that i too may come and worship him this is the false worship of a king what does fake worship what does false worship look like today well it's just going through the motions isn't it at christmas It's coming to the service and listening to the Bible read, but it's not really listening. It's coming to the services and engaging in the carols and delighting in all the festivity, but not really paying honor to the true king. It's not just being nervous when you hear that Jesus is the true king. It's actually failing to do anything about it if you know that 2023 has been a year of of fake worship, can I encourage you, it's not too late. It's not too late to recognise who the true king of this world is. Can I encourage you? We've prayed a prayer of repentance. Can I encourage you to think about these things, to read over these verses that we're studying and to humbly recognise that Jesus is God's true king, that he alone can offer us the hope of eternal life, a restored relationship with God in this life, and the joy of being in fellowship with others. It's not too late. But this is the wrong response. Herod models this perfectly for us. False worship, fake worship, is the wrong response. So what is the right response? Well, this is modelled for us by these wise men. This is the one of true worship. Herod couldn't even be bothered travelling some 20 kilometres down the road to visit Bethlehem. These men had come over 1,000 kilometres on foot. Now, this is not to say that we must do the same. We, 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 that's not possible. True response is acknowledging the Lord Jesus as the King. Let's read about what they did verse 10 when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with mary his mother they fell down they worshiped him then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh what does true worship look like it's recognizing that jesus is god's king It's recognising the value of the gift that we have been given at Christmas. It's being unashamed to pursue Jesus, no matter what the cost. It's delighting in his coming to us and his reaching out to us to save us. It's recognising the infinite worth of what is held out to us in the words of Matthew's Gospel. David Foster Wallace was an American essayist and novelist. He was a university um, professor of English and creative writing. And in 2005, he sadly uh, passed away. He wasn't a believer. Uh, And in 2005, he addressed the graduating class of Kenyon College. And this is what he said. He said, there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. and When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you always need even more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship intellect and being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. His words are striking, aren't they? Everybody worships. We all worship. It's true, isn't it? Deep down, we have something that we're holding on to, something that we're hoping in, something that won't let us down. And his observation is also true. The choice is, who are we going to worship? Are we going to worship some material thing? Or are we going to worship a living person? After the noise and the dust of Christmas settle, where do our hearts go? What do we really long for? Do our minds go to what is going to keep us secure what is going to provide for us in the future we open up the superannuation app check the properties check the shares or maybe it's leisure it's that holiday that we're looking forward to that will make my life perfect what is it that we long for because what we long for when all the dust settles that's what we're really putting our hope in that's what we have faith in That's what we are hoping in. That's what we're worshipping. Matthew's Gospel, as Ken very helpfully pointed out, it begins and ends in worship. It begins with Jesus coming in to this world, being born as a human and being worshipped by these wise men. It ends with Jesus being raised into glory, ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God and the disciples worshipping him as they see him raised from this world. From beginning to end, Matthew is pointing out that Jesus is God's king. He is worthy of our worship. Why? Because he is God's true king. He is God's son. He has come to do what kings do. Kings save. They deliver, they protect, they provide for their people. And Jesus is God's king who delivers and protects and provides for us and saves us from our greatest Need. He came to this earth to give his life as a ransom, to save us from the judgment of God, to save us from the true judgment that we rightly deserve. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. What have we seen in these few verses? Jesus is God's King. God's king who is worthy of all our worship. May God himself give us the strength to worship him as worship his king this Christmas. Let's pray. O God, our heavenly father, we praise you for giving us the king we don't deserve in the Lord Jesus. Father, please give us the humility to humble ourselves and to worship your Son as he deserves. And Father, as we do that, please fill us with the joy, the exceedingly great joy that the wise men knew as they came and fell on their faces all those years ago. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your great mercy and kindness to us in and through the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.